Hello, and welcome to the Anchor Bible Study Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word with our Wednesday evening Bible studies here in this podcast. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's lesson. Okay, so we're studying now spiritual darkness and the forces of evil and spiritual warfare and how to deal with that. Obviously, with the first session, we talk about current events. We're always talking about forces of evil, it seems like. And to understand the battle, we got to understand the originator of all of this rebellion, all this evil. And so now we're looking at Satan's five I wills of what he would try to do and try to accomplish. And we went through that. And then tonight we're going to finish on number five, the last one. And then I want to unpack that a little bit tonight. So the last I will is I will be like the Most High or El Elyon. Uh, I will be the highest Elohim. Satan is a spirit creature. And so um, he wants to be obviously like God. Okay, so when he says this, that I will make myself like the Most High, what he is in effect saying is I want to possess everything God possesses. Not only do I want his throne, not only do I want to be the highest, but I want to possess heaven and earth. I want both, both aspects. I want physical and I want the spiritual as well. I want to be the possessor of this. Okay, so if we go back to the Garden of Eden, his attempt to secure the physical universe with Adam and Eve who were given dominion, he usurped them, if you recall. The Garden of Eden was, from Satan's standpoint, was a usurping of their authority over the physical universe, or, or, or over Earth, I should say. And the fact that Adam and Eve were given dominion, and therefore he basically usurped them in their dominion and took the physical realm from them. And so... The key to understand one of the aspects of what Messiah did in the crucifixion is not only bought our salvation, but in the crucifixion, Messiah was able to redeem our situation with the physical universe, the physical place of earth. And therefore, when you get to the book of Revelation, they cry out that I searched heaven, John says, and there was no one there who was deemed worthy. And the idea is because all human beings are flawed, all human beings are sinful, and therefore no human being can redeem man, can redeem the creation, can become the king again. Adam lost his kingship because of the usurpation of Satan. And so what was required in order to get back this physical planet back into the hands of man's dominion was it needed another man who was perfect. Obviously, that being the Messiah, being the God-man, Jesus was perfect. And then he goes to the cross, makes the sacrifice for sin. But in doing so, he not only wins our victory for salvation, he wins victory over Satan. And it is the uh, has the ability now to reclaim Adam's throne. Okay? That's what the second Adam is for is to reclaim the throne that Adam lost and basically reestablish our dominion. This is what the writer of Hebrews will say. We don't see this dominion happening now, but we see Jesus. The idea is that the fact that you see Jesus' victory means that one day man will again reestablish his dominion over the physical part of this planet and have that dominion back through the Messiah. Okay, 
So when that was arrested from Satan, that's why when you look at the book of Revelation, that God the Father can hand the Son of Man the seals, okay, the scroll that contain the seals and contain all the judgments of the, tri the tribulation period. And this is where I want to go with it. When God the Father is giving the seal scrolls to the Son of Man, it means that the Son of Man now has the authority to exercise the power to expunge Satan, his demons, his fallen angels, and evil humans out of this world, out of this physical world. You got the, the seal judgments that open up into the trumpet judgments that open up to the seven thunder judgments that then open up to the seal judgments. There's basically 28 judgments in the title deed to planet Earth. Therefore, one of the reasons for the tribulation is for Messiah to expunge both aspects of Satan's kingdom and the human kingdom that is in rebellion to God. And Messiah has the authority to do that. Hence, that's why we have the seven-year tribulation, is to get rid of the usurper, the usurper Satan. And then the human usurper is who? Antichrist. Is to get rid of both of them, the human usurper and the, the spiritual usurper. Now, possessing heaven and earth is having control of all aspects. It means he wants authority, he wants ownership, and he wants power. Okay? Authority, ownership, and power. And so what Satan's game has been, he has been trying to do is gain all three aspects from God. And as you can see, some of his tactics include that if you'll look hard enough in the spiritual warfare. So let's take, um, for instance, authority. If you study what's happening in the world, if you study what's happening in your life, in your spiritual walk with the Lord, there is a struggle going on in authority. That's the big deal. That's the major problem in the Bible is this. By whose authority do I listen to? That's a major problem. And most of the time, believers in the Bible will gravitate to listening to God's authority, but most of the time, some of these other rebellions that happen in Israel and even in the church, they start listening to other authorities. So the game that's starting to play in the area of authority is who will humans listen to? Will they listen to Satan or will they listen to God? Because see, in the angelic conflict, the good angels don't listen to Satan. They're already signed, sealed, and delivered. So who does he have to tempt? He doesn't tempt other angels. He attempts human beings to rebel against God, to dishonor God, and to remove their subjection to his authority to his authority. That's how the game is being played. Okay, what are the implications for you? Well, simple. The implication is about this. Who are you listening to? And particularly, who are you listening to about your identity? It's a big deal in authority. See, authority is about knowing who you are and how you relate to other people and how you relate to the chain of command that comes straight from God through angels, through the Messiah, through the church, through pastors, through deacons, and even in your own household, okay? You have to understand the chain of authority because the chain of authority tells you how you relate to God and others and the civil magistrates and everyone else. So authority is a major thrust in spiritual warfare. So what Satan does is he messes that, that spiritual authority up and makes you succumb to his authority structure, okay? In his authority structure, he designs the authority structure, 
And then he tells you who you are in that authority structure and how you relate to him, how you relate to others, how you relate to the world, and how you relate to God. And so if you succumb to his authority, you will have your identity stolen from you. That's how he plays the game. The Bible tells you who you are. The Bible tells you where you came from, tells you what you're doing, and it tells you where you're going. The Bible has a full course on your identity. And if you're a believer, how much more you are uh, being given in Christ with um, your new identity in him. Your old identity is, yes, you're still made in the image of God, but you're sinful. You have incredible talent that God gave you, but you're deeply weak and flawed. And so there's this thing that the Bible's trying to tell human beings actually who they are. Once you become a believer, then you take on the identity of the Messiah. You're not the Messiah, but you take on that new nature, and Christ lives his new life in you, and he tells you who you are. You're a king, you're a priest, you're this, you're that, you're seated in the heavenlies. He's going to share his throne with you. You're a new creation in the Messiah. You have a new nature. The Holy Spirit indwells you. You have a new destiny. You have a new future. You can be rewarded actively and passively. And all of a sudden, what you start realizing is the game of authority is about game of identity. And God is wanting you to know who you are in order so that you can stand and understand how to relate to others, relate to him, and relate to yourself and their surroundings and reality. If you don't know who you are, you are the most vulnerable human being walking on the planet. Now, let me explain that. So how does it start? It starts when you're a kid. And Satan, because he doesn't play fair, starts when you're impressionable and you do not have somebody there to help you. Typically, we don't. Typically, we didn't have parents that could come alongside of us and say, hey, I know what you're going through, but here's what's going to happen to your identity. So what happens is, Most people don't know how to handle their child's identity. They don't know how to handle their own identity. So they're going through childhood, they're going through their teenage years, and they are lost because they don't know who they are. Completely don't know. So because they don't know, they go searching for identity. And so what Satan does is he realizes they're on the path, that you and I are on the path to look for that identity, the the identity that should be found in the Bible but they go on a search. And so what they do is they try to find themselves in their identity. And again, so what he does is he says, listen to my authority. I will tell you exactly who you are, and I will tell you how to deal with that identity. I will tell you how to deal with others. I will tell you how to deal with God, and I will tell you how to deal with reality and yourself. And people make a deal. They don't realize they're making a deal, but they make a deal. So here's what he does. He takes them at a vulnerable age, and he uses their pain He uses their trauma, and he uses whatever thing that they're going through that jacks them up, and then he sweet talks them in their ear and saying, this is who you are because of your pain, because of your trauma, because of what you went through. And the person accepts it, and then they build a lifestyle around that, and they don't realize they're following another authority structure rather than God's. So if Satan can get your identity, then he can control you. How so? So let's say you go through trauma as a child. You go through some type of rejection. Uh, one of the parents are not there. I don't know. Maybe you may got molested. Maybe you got raped. I don't know. It could be anything, something. Your parents divorce. Divorce, believe it or not, is a big deal for, tra- for trauma for kids. Divorce is a major deal. 
Most people brush it away and they say, oh, they're kids, they'll get over it. They never do. They live with it their whole lives and it hurts them. So Satan will take something like that, like a divorce, and he'll take that and create an identity in the child from divorce. So here's what happens. A child will go through a divorce and the typical thing that a child will do is personalize it. That's the worst thing you can do is start personalizing what other people are doing. So the child personalizes it and they start saying to themselves, it's because of me that my parents divorced or my ter- one of my parents rejected me. And, and so there must be something wrong with me. There's a reason why dad rejected me. There's a reason why mom rejected me. And Satan's working on this. He's working on this and saying, yeah, there is a reason. I wonder what the reason is. And then before you know it, the person will either have Satan whisper it to them or they will come up with the idea themselves and create an identity out of the pain of the divorce. And it could be something like this. My parents rejected me because they didn't like my personality. My parents rejected me because I was the mess up and I wasn't the golden child. My parents rejected me because I was a screw off. My parents rejected me because I wasn't smart enough. My parents rejected me because I didn't have the right personality. It's whatever they make up. So what happens is under Satan's authority, you receive an identity called a rejection identity or a shame identity. This is how he plays the game. Shame identity or rejection identity. And the person starts their identity early in life and they say, man, I, I, you know, there's something wrong with me. I've had people tell me, I just, I don't know, I'm just all messed up. They don't know what it is, but I'm all messed up. That's why my parents rejected me. And that keeps going on. So now that, that Satan has established embryonically a shame identity in the person, that person will then act on it because they believe it, that there's something wrong with them, okay? And they don't know how to get the acceptance back from their parental unit. This is the problem. So they go on a search for it. So I'm just using one scenario just to show you an example. So they have a rejection shame identity. Something's wrong with me. And so I need certain things. I need acceptance. I need love. I need affection. I, I, I need to be valued. I need unconditional love. That's deep down in someone's soul, right? And Satan knows this. But then what he does is he says, well, you're not going to get it there. Because the, the, the Tweedledee and Tweedledum ain't going to give it to you. So you better go somewhere else. Because they have rejected you and you better find another place where they accept you. And so the person will go on a search to find acceptance. Now here's the thing. Because the person has a shame identity, because the person has um, a rejection issue, remember I told you it will cause them to relate to people in a different way. Because if, if they think, man, I am all messed up, I am bad, I don't want people to see who I am, I, I just can't, I can't deal with myself. If I'm a teenager, then who would I date? Somebody worse than me. Okay? Oh, good. You're going to date, so if, if you think you're a two because of your rejection identity, you're going to date a one. Or you're at zero. Why would you do that? Because in your mind, that's the best you can get. What does that tell you about marriage? Let's go further than that. Someone that enters in a marriage, and the parents are like, man, I don't know why you're marrying that person. That dude's crazy, man. What are you doing? What are you thinking? They're nuts. I love him. But you know, but what, what, but what is it? But what is it? Because you know the guy's nuts, and you know the guy's no good. In their mind, they will say, that's the best I can get because I have a shame identity. And that shame identity goes all the way back to my childhood. And so it makes their picking of people, their p- people picker goes off. Why? It's not because 
you, you sit there and you think, don't you have any common sense? Don't you see what you're doing? Don't you see the kind of flaws? No, they can't see it because in their mind they're saying, this is the best I get can get. Don't you understand that? And if I don't get this, I'm going to be lost. And so they end up settling because of their own identity. Okay, let's, let's talk about what kind of jobs they have then. What kind of job would I pick if I'm, I have a rejection identity? So I got two choices that I'll make. I'll make two choices if I have a rejection identity. Sometimes it's both. Maybe, maybe you'll make a combination of both, but this is what typically people do with a rejection identity. First off, I will choose the path of destruction because I'm no good. I'm not worthy. Uh, what does it, does it matter? I don't care. I just, I'm just surviving. Um, I'm not worth anything. So they choose jobs or paths that are more destructive, that, that, that are dead-end jobs, we call them, right? They don't go anywhere. There's no future in them. It's just spinning a wheel, and they just grind it out, and they don't care. They don't care. All they're doing is worrying about getting to the next weekend, okay? That's a, that's a destruction identity because of who they are. They, why, why, why would I even think about going to college, or why would I even think about going into a trade, or why would I, what's the point? I'm, I'm just going to fail anyway. So they go in the path of destruction. So usually they head to low-paying jobs, low-skilled low jobs, because they don't really care. This is why when the teachers don't understand, I don't understand why he's failing in class. I don't understand why he's not motivated. It's because he has rejection identity, at, and, and he's already given up. You don't understand. There's nothing you can do at that point to motivate him because you have to get to his identity. It's not about rah, rah, rah in him. He's got to change his identity. That's why he gives up in school. That's why he's getting F's, and you know he's a smart kid. You know he's smart or she's smart, but they're, they're screwing up because they don't know who they are. Okay, that's one path. The other path is I'll choose performance to prove you wrong. Path of destruction or I'm going into performance, and I will choose and show you all that I am worthy of love and respect and honor because I, I have the shame identity, but I'm going to prove you wrong, and I'm going to front with performance. You're going to see me with two identities, actually. I'll have one that I hide, and I have one that I front, and I will front with everybody with performance. Oh, isn't he such a great worker? Look at him. He's a high achiever. Don't they make good money? Oh, isn't that great? Isn't that wonderful? Yeah, that's the person they want you to see. But what they're doing is hiding with a fig leaf the, through performance the real identity, the shame identity that's hiding in the bushes like Adam and Eve are hiding from the Lord. Why do you think Adam and Eve hid from the Lord? Shame identity. Shame. Why are you hiding? And what did they do? Fig leaves. What do fig leaves do? They cover. Cover up your shame. Why? Who told you you were naked? Ah, so the devil will come to you early on and say, you're naked. You better cover up. And you will make your own fig leaves through performance to cover up your shame identity. I'm taking this right out of Genesis, by the way. The whole principles are coming out of Genesis of what Adam and Eve did. So people that go through a shame identity, they typically have a tough time with God. Why? If I have a shame identity of rejection, why would I have a hard time with God? He is love. But what has Satan twisted their mindset about God? Because the rejection you got from your parents is the same kind of rejection you get from your father. Because how do you learn about God? You learn about God through your parents. That's the first instance where you will learn about God. Do you think Satan doesn't know that? Of course he does. That's why he fouls up parents to communicate who God is. So if the parents mess up the home, it messes up the image of God. 
and they will have to have go through a lot of more lot more barriers and hindrances if their parents were fouled up to find who God is. Because Satan will say, aha, see, no one cares about you. You're rejected. And by the way, that Jesus, he rejects you too because you're the same scumbag. So don't even think about going to him. I'll be your God. I'll accept you. He won't because you have to be perfect with him. You see how the game's played. And so they instantly get a wedge put in them between them and God. And they don't even know who God is. They, they think it's, he's the God of rejection. He's the God of no provision. He's the God of no love. He's the God of no protection. He's the God of no presence. He's the God of no promises. You see where it's going? So why would you even go to God? And you don't. You hide from him. And we went to the juvenile correction off, uh, out there. It used to be at Laredo. And the kids we were talking to at 12 and 13, same mindset. I'm, I've already messed up too bad. Jesus don't want me. So I've already, I already saw that Satan had already played with their minds and their identity, and they were no good. They were no good to, to anybody, they thought. They were trash. And they chose, obviously, a life of destruction. So this is the thing is, the life of destruction one is easy to pick out because you can see it. But the performance one is a harder one to get because they're high achievers, typically. They're the ones in your family that are making the most money. They're the ones gaining their, their traction in this world. But at the end of the day, what you have to see is they have the same identity as the one who's destroying themselves. They're just, they're just hiding it a lot better through performance. You have to get back to, to understanding, hey, man, tell me about what you went through. That's where you have to start. Just tell me where you went, what, what happened to you, man. Well, this happened, my dad did this, and, or my mom did this, and, and just listen to them. And then what you're trying to find out is, is as they're letting them talk, as you let them talk, their heart reveals what's really happening. They'll, they'll actually spit it out. Just let, just keep listening. And once you'll, what'll happen is you'll start hearing the shame identity and you'll just, you get to the point where you say, why do you think they did that to you? And he'll say, well, or she says, well, it's this because of that. And then that's when that's a lie. They're going to tell you a lie and you have to come back and say, that's a lie. But I know you still will believe it even if I'm telling you it's a lie. Well, Dennis, you know, I'm just no good. You just don't know me. I'm just no good. That's a lie. You're a sinner. That's true. In need of salvation. But it doesn't mean you're unredeemable. See, in, in Satan's mind, he wants people to think they're unredeemable. There's no hope for you. Give up and, and, and just kill yourself. Because there's no hope. See, there's a difference between redeemable and unredeemable, right? You're a sinner. You still can be redeemed, right? That's the truth. But Satan doesn't want you to think that you can be redeemed. He wants you to think you're trash and unredeemable, and there's no way of bringing you back. You're stuck in a Calvinist world that you can't change. Your destiny is set. So you might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die because there's no way of changing you. And so this is where people get lost in their identity and they float around. They don't know who they are. And so because they don't know who they are, they don't know how to relate to God. They don't know how to relate to others. So guess what kind of friends they'll have? Typically losers. Losers or performance-based losers. Birds of a feather flock together. Why? Because they find comfort in the same type of mentality that reinforces what they believe about themselves. And this is what they will do to relationships of the opposite sex. They will actually sabotage the relationship. What? 
See, deep down inside, they want the relationship. They want to get married. They want to have kids. They want to have this family. Deep down, they want to. Because that's a God-given drive inside of them, right? Everybody wants that. They want to be loved. They want to be honored. But then what happens is, okay, Satan takes that desire that they want, and then he'll tell them, yeah, you may want it, but you know good and well when they find you out, he or she's going to dump you because they're going to find out the real you. You can't be good every Saturday night for three hours. Come on, you and I know each other. So when the veil comes down, he's going to see or she's going to see the ugliness in you and you're going to be rejected. And hey, between you and me, I'm just watching out for you because you can't face rejection again. Remember how it felt when you got rejected and the pain you felt when you got rejected? We can't feel that anymore. I'm just watching your back. I don't want you to feel any pain. So let's not go forward into this relationship. Let's not get any closer to them. You can have a one-night stand or whatever and make yourself feel good. That's okay. But we can't go into a deep relationship because you know what, man? You just can't bear that pain anymore. I just got your back. Let's end it now. So the person will have serial monogamy. And they'll go from partner to partner to partner to partner to partner to partner. And they still can't find the partner. Because in the in the mind, they, they want it, but they feel they don't deserve it. So they what do they do? Kill the relationship, sabotage it some way, act like an idiot, do something stupid, and sabotage the relationship. And what they don't realize is they're being controlled by their master, Satan, who's got them to submit to his authority, and they're submitting to what he has told them who they are instead of God telling them. And once he's got them in that identity, he's locked in. So when you go, so when you go to the biblical identity, it tells you your value. It tells you your purpose. It tells you um, how you relate to others, how you relate to God. And, and so the shame identity then is gone because you realize that you're so valuable he didn't reject you. He actually accepts you in the beloved, and that changes everything all of a sudden. That should change your identity. But here's what I find out. Even though some people will know that, it doesn't change the shame. They won't let go of the shame identity. Why is that? Because even if they know it, I've sat there in counseling and telling people, this is who your identity is. You're loved. You're valuable. Um, you're not a piece of trash. You're redeemable. He's got a great future, and they still don't believe it. What's the problem? Even if I show them the truth, what's the problem? Habit is ingrained, and what does the habit do? What's the habit based on? A lie. They're believing lies, even though I'm confronting them with the truth. They still believe the lies. Why is that? Why would they still hold on to a lie? I'm telling them right there in counseling, you're believing a lie. You're believing a lie. You're believing a lie. Yes, yeah, thank you. Thank you, Susie. There is benefit. And this is why it's so difficult to get out of the situation. And Satan knows why it's so sick. Because the person starts getting rewards for believing the wrong identity. That's the problem. They get payoffs for the wrong identity. Don't you think a cocaine addict knows he's doing wrong, but what's the reward? It gets high. But is it about high? Or what else is it? It's about escape. Escaping from reality. Escaping from his parents, escaping from his home, escaping from reality, whatever that might be. So what Satan is doing is realizing that if I can mess with your identity and get you to believe in that identity, I'll actually surround you with rewards to keep you in that identity. And, and so that's why the scripture says there's pleasure in sin. So 
when there's pleasure in sin, that's what's keeping you in it. There's a reward for believing you're no good. What reward would there be for believing I'm trash? I, I get sympathy. Yeah, poor me. I can, I can keep going. Keep going. It goes, distill it down. Distill it down. Poor me. Don't you feel sorry for me? I'm a victim. And if I'm a victim, then what? There's no expectations on me. Don't expect anything from me. I'm no good. And I am no, not responsible for my life. Thank you very much, Jay. At the end of the day, the wrong identity creates irresponsibility in the person. And that's why they don't want to fix themselves because they like being irresponsible. They like not having the responsibility of getting up and believing in the truth and walking in it. They won't do it. So at the end of the day, why does the Proverbs always go back? Humans are lazy. Humans are lazy. Humans are lazy. Humans are lazy. Why is that a constant theme in the book of Proverbs? Because people are spiritually lazy. It is a lot easier to believe lies because I can be lazy with my spiritual walk. Hence, what is the name of a follower of Jesus? A disciple. A disciplined one. A disciplined one. I want you to think about the difference. A disciplined one versus an irresponsible one. What did he tell the guy who buried his talent? Lord, I knew you were a hard man, scattering where you do not scatter seed and reaping where you do not sow. So I went, huh? And here is your talent. I buried it. Here it is. What did Messiah say back to them? Number one, you're number one, you're wicked for doing this. Number two, lazy. You're lazy. That's your problem. You're lazy. See, what, what you have to understand is the devil is banking on that identity to get you to believe that identity so he can get you lazy in your spiritual walk. And if you're lazy in your spiritual walk, he's got you. He's got you. So what wakes that person up? How did they get out of that? Yeah. Confess, repent. But what would wake the person up? How would you get out of that? If you're stuck in that kind of identity and you're, you're surrounded with all kinds of rewards reinforcing that identity, how would you get out of that? So what will happen typically is that the people surrounding these people always pad them, always come to their rescue, always provide a safety net. And so what you realize when you start counseling with somebody is they have a whole group of people, friends, family, loved ones, whatever, that are keeping them in the devil's game, enabling them. So what happens is the devil's pretty smart. He'll just surround them with people that don't know biblical uh, Christianity as, as far as consequences and limitations on the individual. And so the people around them actually keep them in the problem. And they're part of the problem. So the first thing you have to do is get everyone around them squared up. Because if, if they have an enabler that keeps them in that game, that, that enabler's the one hurting the process. So usually there's a codependent somewhere in the game. Somewhere. Okay, so if you get them out, what happens? They have to, number one, hit rock bottom, and people have to let them hit rock bottom. You have to let reality smack them in the face and say, you can't keep acting like this. You can't keep doing this. And that, I, that's hard. People don't want to hear it. In fact, that's not what your counselors will tell you. What, will the, what, will the, what do you think the counselors say? Pray tell. What have you heard? It's a season. They'll get over it. it it's, it'll pass. Just love them. Back to the brick of reality. 
So now that the person is on their own, they've hit the brick of reality, and here's the key on all of this. The pain of not changing that identity has to be greater than staying in the identity. So the person has to feel that it's very painful to keep acting like this. I'm losing things. I'm losing my life. I'm losing people. And once they realize they're starting to lose things, that is the way of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. That is the consequence and limitations that starts waking them up. And what it is, is biblical isolation. Biblical isolation is meant to wake the person up, which means you strip the person of financial help, you strip the person of fellowship, you strip the person of even eating a meal with them. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You think I'm making it up? Just read 1 Corinthians 5. Paul will even say, do not eat a meal with them if they're practicing sin and they won't repent. You're not to have fellowship with that individual. But what is the what does the opposite of the world say? Oh, no, we should never do that. That's very hurtful. That's the whole point. The point is to cause them pain. What kind of pain? Redemptive pain. Not hurtful pain, redemptive pain. Pain is good because it wakes people up. And so if you follow what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 5, the way to get them out of this stupid, satanic identity is to cause them pain. I know that sounds paradoxical. That sounds opposite. But it's the only thing that works according to scriptures. So then I have a choice then. The person hits the brick wall, and then what happens? Hopefully, they become like the prodigal son. They wake up in the pig pen, and what did he do? He head on back home. And so what you see with the prodigal son, let me ask you about the prodigal son's father, because many of you will have to play that role. What did the prodigal son's father do to him? Let him go. Did he follow him? Did he pay his hotel bills? Did he pay his college tuition? Did he provide food for him? Did he seek him out? Did he text him? Did he email him? Did he invite him for Christmas? Did he invite him for Thanksgiving? Boy, that seems like a mean man. That's a very mean man. I can't believe he didn't want to pay his bills. I can't believe he didn't want to help him go to college. How mean can a guy get? What's being illustrated here? Tough love. I'm going to let you go on your own. You want to go party. You want to hit yourself in the head in a brick wall. Do it on your dime, but not on mine. And he gave him his inheritance. So guess what? So when he comes, he spent his inheritance. And what is the inheritance is a spiritual lesson about rewards. The boy didn't care about his inheritance is the idea. He spent it. The inheritance, what are you supposed to do according to Jesus about your inheritance? Store up what? Treasure in heaven. So the inheritance is what we get in rewards. So the boy didn't care about the rewards, giving it now. I want my good times now. I don't want my good times later. So he forfeited, John, he forfeited rewards. No, he was fine to do it because he says, basically, you can have it. But but see, no, you're, you're, it is tough love, but, but let me explain. What's happening here in the story is a mix of spiritual truth and the parable. The spiritual truth is no one gets your rewards now. Everybody knows that. But the point is you can squander your rewards by messing up your life. 
So you don't want to get too fine into the details. It's the point of losing rewards because when he comes back, he comes back and he has no rewards. He has no inheritance, right? Because he spent it all. In the, in the, in spiritual understandings of rewards, your rewards are already been given to you. They're waiting for you based on if you will do everything you were supposed to do. But as we go through life, if we don't do what we're supposed to do, those rewards get removed and given to another. So it's like you start off with a big pot and here's all your rewards. And Messiah already has said, this is all that I'll give you based on the kind of life I want you to live. So if you don't, every day that you mess up or whatever, he takes rewards from you. So by the time you get to heaven, the rewards that you earned are there. And the ones you lost, lost is the key word, have been removed and given to another. So in the parable, the boy comes back. He gets restored, but he squandered his rewards. He lost rewards. And so then the father, his job is simply to wait on the boy until he returns. And that's it. That's it. And that's called tough love. I'm going to cut you off. Matthew 20. The parable of the workers in the field, the one that comes at nine, one comes at 12, one comes at three, one comes at the last hour. What did the last guy, guy do? He worked hard enough to make up for all the whole day. In the last hour, he worked for the whole, that whole time. He made up for the whole day. That, the guy that started at nine, he earned the same reward because he worked so hard at it. So can you get your rewards back? Absolutely. Absolutely. But that's why you don't want to press the parable too far because it's, it's trying to teach a lesson that the guy squandered part of his life. And, and, and so can you gain rewards back? Absolutely. Um, and a lot of people are on that track to do that. So, so with that being said, when the boy returns, he's lost something. He's lost something, right? He's different now. How do we know he's different? He's humble. He doesn't ask for anything. The victim mentality is gone. The entitlement mentality is gone. And he's like, just make me a servant. I'm not worthy to even be called your son. You're looking at reality, teaching humility to the individual. Well, the behavior of a shame identity individual there are several things that come out. Number one, they're not trusting of people. They don't trust people at all. They're very scared of people because people burned them. And so because of that, they don't trust anybody. So they keep their distance from people. Their typical, their, their typical uh, reward system is to withdraw, get away, isolate, and not be around people. Because if they get too close, they'll be found out or they'll feel like they'll get rejected and they don't want to have that pain. One of the things. The other thing is they look for escapes in life. The escapes in life could escape the pain of rejection and the feeling of rejection. They'll look for escapes. Could be drugs, alcohol, sex, pornography, whatever it might be. But they'll look for temporary escapes to satisfy the pain inside of them that's really going on because of the rejection that's going on. It's, it's very painful. And you're talking about people, we're not, you know, that, that are adults. We're not talking about children. We're talking about adults that are still feeling the pain and their parents are passed on and their families passed on. They still feel pain. And they don't know how to cope with that. So what the devil has taught them is to, to cope with that pain through worldly, worldly methods instead of going to the biblical methods and understanding who you are. And so a lot of people turn to sex. A lot of people turn to relationships. And so a lot of that can be covered up. You don't know what's really going on. But 
I guess what, what we have to do is you have to start with a behavior and work backwards from that. What is the behavior telling me? So like if someone told me, hey, man, I have a problem with drugs, man. I can't get off drugs. Okay, so let's work backwards from the drugs. Why are you doing drugs? Well, it makes me feel good. Why does it make you feel good? Well, you know, i got a lot going on in my life. So, oh, you're doing drugs to escape the pain in your life. Is that what you're doing? Yeah, well, where's the pain coming from? Well, you know, I, I had a bad, rocky relationship with this gal, and yada, yada, I went bad, and, and this and that. I said, oh, okay, so you had a bad breakup? Yeah. I go, what happened in the bad breakup? Well, you know, some of the things they said, some of the things they did, they cheated on me, and it was just awful, and, you know, I, I really felt bad about that. Ah, she's telling me their pain. Rejection from someone she dated. Ah, so if the, okay, so the, the other tactic then is if you don't want to feel pain, then the person goes numb. And then the person will learn a tactic called detachment. And the person will detach from their emotions. They don't feel anything. In fact, when you ask them about what happened to them, they can't remember. That's, a, that's a, actually a tactic that people use in their head to go blank so they don't remember the bad thing. And so they'll do a detachment. So this is what happens. Someone has learned a detachment. Detachment actually is a gift. And you have to use it in certain situations to get through certain situations, like a funeral or a trauma or something like that. But then the person will learn to detach with other people. And they just go numb. They don't feel anything anymore. And what happens is when they're in a relationship, they have the, they'll, they'll lose the ability to connect with anybody because anybody that gets close to the hurt, they just go numb. I don't feel anything. So then when I'm counseling a spouse, and they'll say, my spouse doesn't relate to me on an emotional level. Well, I typically know why. Because if the spouse had to relate to you on an emotional level, they have to tap into their own emotions, and they've went numb. They've went totally numb. And so to empathize with someone else, like what they're feeling, you have to enter into your emotions so I can feel their emotions and be able to get in their own shoes and feel what they're feeling, like in a spousal situation. You feel what your spouse is feeling. But here's the number one complaint with spouses. My, my, my husband or my wife cannot feel what I'm feeling. And then when you ask them, well, why, why don't you feel what they're feeling? They'll say, I just can't relate. I, I just, then I start working on them. What, what happened to you? And then once you find out they went into trauma or some type of thing happened, they, they learned a tactic. Rape victims can do this really well. Molestation victims can do this. You know why? Because when they're getting raped and they're getting molested, they actually shut off emotionally from what's happening. They're like outside of their body. That's a defensive mechanism when that happens to women, is they, they learn how to detach to protect themselves in a rape or molestation situation. But then, not just them, but guys will get into a relationship and they can't relate because they don't want to feel their own pain. They don't want to go to the rejection identity. They don't want to feel that again. So they'll say, I, you know what? I, I sympathize with you, honey, but that's all I can do. And they can't connect, but they hold themselves back because they are cut off from their emotions and they, they, they just refuse to feel the pain. And so what we have to do is you have to work with them in counseling to get them to, to accept the pain understand it, process it correctly, and get set free from the wrong identity and set free from that pain. And it takes a process to get them through the, that, that, that ordeal. And then once you get them there, then they can start actually connecting on an empathetic level to their spouse and other people. But after that, have you ever noticed people, 
um, even in a grief situation, they, they just won't grieve, man. They just can't, they can't go there. You tell them something bad happened, oh yeah, that's bad, and then they move on. That's someone that's like holding back, don't make me go there, don't make me go there. So all that to say is, this is the devil's game. This is how the devil plays the game. So back to your point, you can choose to find a behavior that's bad, or you can choose to cut yourself off emotionally and act like nothing ever happened. But guess what? If you have a root inside of you, what'll happen? Grows. And you can spend all day. The devil, here's what the devil wants you to do. The devil wants you to play the game by cutting off branches. Oh, this is a bad branch. I'm addicted to this. Cut that off. Okay, now I'm good. No, you're not. Because another branch will sprout. Oh, now I'm addicted to gaming. Oh, no, I got to cut gaming off. You cut the gaming off. Oh, I'm good now. No, you're not. Because then another branch will grow. Oh, I'm addicted to this. Or oh, I, I like this. Or it's all branch stuff. But the person never gets to the root. Because at some point, you have to move from, from believing these things to another set of belief, which is believing the truth. And that's, that's the whole transfer. You've got to get the person from believing lies to believing the truth. That's how you get set free. But you, then you have to first cut off the, 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 with radical amputation, you have to cut off the, the spiritual blessings they're, not, sorry, not spiritual blessings, the rewards they're getting for keeping the lie going. They know it's a lie, but they'll keep the lie going because they get benefits out of it. So you have to first to convince them to cut the benefits off, and sometimes you have to do that through consequences and limitations, and then you can isolate them from the lie and then get the truth to them, and then they'll eventually get set free through a process of believing the truth. But the key is you have to transfer belief from lies to truth. You have to transfer it over. That's the, the big result uh, that you'll end up getting, and if you can do that, the person gets set free from unforgiveness, bitterness, rage, anger, uh, all these other things that happened in their life. They'll, they'll be able to let it go, but until then, they, they get stuck in it. I know it's a lot. So that there's the L, so here's the funny thing. This is the weird twist, but you nailed it. There's an element of pride in it. What do you mean? Okay, so how is there pride with someone who believes they're worthless? I can't be wrong. I'm trash, don't you know, Phil? I can't be wrong. No, no, you're loved by God. No, I'm not. So there's a pride in defending what they believe about themselves. He's got them. So now you have the combination of pride, believing lies. Oh, my lanta. So one of the things you've got at that point now, the person has to get to spiritual poverty in order to release the pride. I'm this way. No, you're not. I'm this way. No, I am. And I will continue to show you that I'm like that. Look, I'll go date someone else and watch what happens. In three months, it'll end. And it will. Because it becomes self-fulfilling prophecies to prove to them, see, I am like this, and my pride tells me this. This is the deception that most people don't realize is happening, and they don't even know it's happened inside of them, and it has. And, and, and quite frankly... He hopes you stay ignorant of the tactics because you won't know how you won't know. How do you fight something when you don't know it's there? How do you fight something? Oh, I didn't know that was in me. Yeah, but it's, it, it's evidence in your behavior. And so that's what we'll talk more about it. We have a whole year to study Satanism.
But anyway, that's how the game's played. We got to get you running. Let's pray. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Anchor Bible Study Podcast. We hope that this lesson is a blessing to you and helps grow you towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. Rock Harbor Church has another podcast called Anchor Sunday Sermons, and it's filled with past and present messages in Revelation, Genesis, and Exodus. If you enjoyed this message and would like to hear it, please check the description of this episode or search your favorite podcast streaming services for the Anchor Sunday Sermons. Support for both of our podcasts comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up, for our redemption draws nearer.